Hello, everybody, and welcome to Flora Funga Podcast with your host, KK. Today, we have a special guest on, Brett Ahrens, the director of the Plant Disease Clinic at the University of Minnesota. Super local. I can't wait to have a tour of this lab. He runs the plant pathology lectures as well as diagnoses thousands of samples per year submitted by homeowners, horticulture, landscaping, forestry, and agricultural groups. This service is important to help protect national food biosecurity by acting as the main surveillance clinic representing Minnesota in the National Plant Diagnostic Network. In this chat, we cover plenty of topics. We go over how Brett got into the plant disease clinic, also called PDC. We go through what even is PDC, the education within the department, what are the steps after getting a sample, how to diagnose, what happened to my geraniums at Sargent, so we kind of get into a real story that relates to me, um, unexplained samples I ask him, and all it's all connected. So we talk about fungi, nematodes, bacteria, insects, what is oak wilt, we explain the geranium bacteria batch. We also talk about how to get rid of contaminated pests, so like if you have a batch of plants that you need to get rid of. How do you properly um, get rid of those and not contaminate other things around it? And where to find Brett? So let's dive in. Well, welcome Brett to Flora Funga Podcast. I am a supervisor at Sargent's Greenhouse um, in Rochester, Minnesota. And my supervisor was saying that we had a full bench of geraniums that kind of were sick, I guess, in a way. And she was saying that she's sending them in for testing. And I was very intrigued. And uh, she brought me over and was like, hey, you seem like you'd be interested in learning this. So here's kind of like what the geraniums look like. The leaves seem like they're slightly brown and like drooping different than other plants. Um, And so she was saying that she sends it into the plant disease clinic in the cities. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have to have them on the podcast. So um, here is Brett and, uh, yeah, kind of get an introduction of yourself, your pronouns, and, um, I guess how you got into this clinic. Cause this is super interesting to me. I had no idea. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for having me. Um, as mentioned, my name is Brett Ahrens. I, uh, use he, him pronouns. Um, so I am the director of the plant disease clinic here at the university of Minnesota. Mm-hmm. We're on the St. Paul campus. Um, and so we really, you know, accept samples from anyone that has a plant health problem. Okay. And, um, we, you know, primarily focus on plant diseases, but of course there are other issues that plants have that, you know, if we don't find a pest or pathogen, we try to, you know, uh, help figure out maybe what's going on with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we get samples from all kinds of different submitters, obviously from farmers, Minnesota, of course, is a uh, big corn soybean producer. Mm-hmm. So a lot of those kind of samples, um, samples from tree care companies, you know, they're working on oaks, pine, spruce, you know, of course, oak wilt is a huge, uh, issue in the, in okay. the twin cities, get a lot of those samples. And then, you know, from, um, homeowners, government agencies, DNR, Minnesota Department of Agriculture, um, Federal Forest Service. And then of course, you know, plant producers and horticulture like, um, like your company. Mm -hmm. So um, we uh, basically, you know, look at the samples, 
do a number of different types of tests, depending on sort of what's warranted, and also try to provide some, um, or at least point people in the direction mm-hmm. of getting some good management information, you know, to try okay. to um, you know, help deal with the problem. Okay. So like you have some sort of like aftercare, but you could also have like preventative or how does that work? Yeah. I mean, honestly, a lot of the diseases um, that you might potentially have to deal with, there isn't a cure for the Mm -hmm. plant disease. Right. And really it's a matter of getting rid of diseased material Mm -hmm. so that it's not an inoculum source for, for nearby plants. Um, but you know, there's a range of resistance to a lot of these diseases as well. And so if you're hoping to plant a similar type of plant, whether it's a tree or an ornamental or whatever, Mm. um, oftentimes there's some pretty good information out there about, uh, about hosts that would actually be resistant to that disease and would be a good option. Okay. Okay. So yeah, tell, tell me a little bit about PDC. Like, how did you get into it? What, what are the services yeah. So, you know, we are based in, you know, the University of Minnesota, obviously, um, and we're in the Department of Plant Pathology. So plant pathology is, you know, essentially the study of, of plant diseases. And um, I, you know, was actually a student here at the University of Minnesota. I got my master's and PhD here mm-hmm. and then kind of started to do some teaching, um, you know, uh, after getting my PhD in the same department. While I was doing some research as a um, as a postdoc um, for a couple of years, and it um, it just kind of happened that the previous clinic director actually uh, moved, uh, got a different okay. job, actually working um, at the USDA in Beltsville. So they hired had to hire a new director, um, and there was kind of a vision for trying to combine it in a different way with some teaching responsibilities, oh, okay. which um, you know previously wasn't kind of included in that position. And uh, our, our, our department at the time had the idea of saying, well, would you be interested in, in you know, trying this out, trying to manage both of those things? And it actually works out pretty well because the clinic, as you might imagine, is, is more busy in the summer, you know, mm-hmm. Minnesota's growing season. Yep. Um, and then we certainly do get samples year round, you know, in the fall and the winter, mm-hmm. greenhouse producers, um, things like that but it's certainly a lot less busy. And so that's what I'm doing uh, most of my teaching. So it's kind of a 12 month um, appointment. It's actually, it's technically a faculty position, but it's a non-tenure track one. So it's Mm -hmm. sort of a contract year to year kind of position. Um, And I've I've enjoyed it a lot. I think that both of those things, you know, teaching and the diagnosis really kind of complement each other. You know, I can talk to students about what some of the things I've been seeing and you know, provide them with some hands-on examples. And, you know, my background, I think gives me a pretty good, um, a handle, or at least a, a way of starting with some of the, you know, really diverse types of samples we, we get in the clinic. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. I didn't know that you were doing some education stuff as well. So you kind of have the lab te- type stuff, and then you also educate students, or is it like a public class or... No, they're um, both basically undergraduate and graduate um, students. In any given year, um, I might have three or perhaps even five different classes um, throughout the year that I teach. Okay. And is it plant pathology that you're teaching or? Okay. For the most part, um, you know, I I have a couple of different graduate classes. One sort of a, you know, kind of entry-level plant pathology class. Another one that focuses on fungal biology. Oh, yes. Um, 
a couple of undergraduate classes, uh, one that is um, sort of about um, the ecology of pest management. Okay. And how, you know, pests and pathogens can evolve to, you know, become resistant to chemical controls and um, how you have to kind of look at it as an ecosystem when you're trying to actually manage it. And um, another class that's sort of about microbiology and history. So how, how wow. microbes have a historical impact and how wow. that, you know. so that's a, that's a really fun one. Um, and obviously, you know, in the last couple of years, there's been some very kind of relevant um, you know, sort of <laughs> issues we've been talking about with, with COVID and the pandemic and things like that. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's, uh, that's even more interesting than I thought. So run me through like how, how like the samples go. So people send in something like, what are the steps? Um, yeah. Yeah. So we get samples either in the mail or hand delivered actually um, <laughs> to our clinic. If, if the submitter is local, you know, and sometimes, you know, you have people with big plants and tree branches and it's a lot easier to kind of bring them in if they can. Okay. Um, but really it starts with visual inspection. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, what are we seeing that makes it look, you know, not healthy. Mm-hmm. And then, um, once we sort of zone in on a kind of a problem area, like maybe it looks like it's a leaf issue and there's mm-hmm. some leaf spots, then we would um, look under the microscope. So starting with like a stereo dissecting scope to look at those, um, you know, potential lesions, I guess, in this example, um, to see if you can see some fruiting bodies, which are, you know, fungal sort of um, structures that produce spores. Because as it turns out, you know, most plant diseases are actually caused by fungi. And um, the nice thing about fungi as as pathogens is oftentimes you can identify them based on their spores. Right. 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 So um, maybe you would take a little bit of that material. If you saw a fruiting body, take it from um, with like a, you know, scalpel, Mm -hmm. put it on a slide, drop of water, put it under an actual microscope, and then, you know, kind of zoom in even farther um, to actually try to, you know, look at the spores, measure them, how many septations do they have? What's the shape? What's the color? Oh, that super kind of thing. cool. Yeah. And so that's the, um, that's the, that's where we typically start. And that is usually because that's the fastest and most efficient way of diagnosing most diseases, right? Mm-hmm. In the case of the geraniums um, that were submitted, it was basically looking for, um, you know, bacterial streaming. So essentially looking for a sort of what looks like a flow of bacteria going out of the tissue, which Ooh. kind of indicates that there is a lot of the bacteria, of course, inside the tissue. Yeah. And then, um, it's actually, there's sort of a positive pressure, which sort of pushes it out and you can get this sort of exudate um, that leaves the lesion. Oh, cool. Um, but you know, sometimes we don't find those things and it can be a different issue, you know, for example, like viral diseases, Mm -hmm. there's really no way of, of, of identifying them just with the microscope. Um, and so you need to go to more kind of sophisticated steps. Like you might actually have to extract DNA and do a more specific test for an actual viral disease, or you might have to use something like an electron microscope. Okay. um, Because they're just too small to see with a light microscope. And um, those require, you know, obviously very sophisticated facilities and expertise um, to actually use. So um, it really kind of depends on on what we're working with, how many different tests we have to do and 
Um, but always it starts with the microscope, I would say, you know, which okay. is not necessarily new technology. Yeah. And have you ever come across a sample where you don't know what you're looking at or you don't know how to figure it out? And it's just like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, definitely. You know, and uh, we're fortunate here in the university, you know, in our department, we have around about 20 faculty or so, and they all have different areas of expertise. And so I can oftentimes, you know, just go across the hall, go up the stairs. And um, for example, we have somebody that specializes in corn and soybean diseases. Oh, okay. if I see something I haven't seen before, something looks a little bit weird. I want to get, um, you know, his kind of take on it. I would ask, you know, Dr. Dean Malvik um, to take a look, okay. um, something like that. You know, we actually um, also had a sort of world famous virologist actually in the department um, for the last 30 years or so who was an enormously um, important resource for us uh, to use. And um, we would oftentimes bring samples to him uh, for viral testing. Unfortunately, he retired last year. Mm. So, um, you know, we're a little bit in a, you know, kind of a hard place now, but we're, we are actually hiring another virologist in our department. So hopefully in the future, we'll be able to you know, have that expertise again. Awesome. You know, also other departments like entomology, if we see a kind of an odd insect issue and we want some help, we would bring it over there. Mm. Um, there's a network that our clinic is involved with, the National Plant um, Diagnostic Network, also just known as NPDN. And essentially, it's a group of, of labs. There's about, um, I think about over 150 of them actually in the network. And there's essentially at least one in every state, and usually connected to the land-grant um, university in the state, or also maybe the Department of Agriculture, or even private labs in some cases. Mm. And... Um, we actually will communicate with them if we're seeing something unusual, you know, there's a list serve we can use, put up pictures and um, kind of describe what we're seeing. And okay. if somebody has seen something similar, they'll kind of chime in. So um, yeah, it it's, would be very difficult to use if we were just in isolation <laughs> uh, because it's such a wide range of different types of things and um, that you yeah. might have to deal with. Yeah. It's all connected. I guess there's like insects to vi viruses to bacteria to fungi. So <laughs> you do probably need different networks to work together. Yeah. And that's kind of a cool thing about plant pathology is it does mm -hmm. cover so many different um, areas of biology, um, mm -hmm. different types of organisms um, from fungi, bacteria, viruses, nematodes, yep. sort of tiny microscopic roundworms um, that are most people don't think about, but they're essentially everywhere. Yeah. Um, a lot of I them. Yeah. A lot of them cause very important plant diseases as well. And you can't see them um, unless you have a microscope. Mm. And then you have other issues, you know, like nutrient deficiencies, uh, herbicide uh, drift um, damage, things like that, um, environmental damage, and um, even just kind of, you know, weird sort of genetic effects that can happen to plants and look like diseases. Okay. So there's really just a very wide range of different topics in plant pathology and um, so it makes it, it makes it interesting. It can be very yeah. challenging though, of course. And certainly the first few years you're working as a diagnostician. Yeah. Some of the samples can take a long time, especially yeah. the ones that end up being no pathogen found, you oh, know, that end yeah. up being some sort of abiotic issue. Um, those were some of the ones that took me the longest to actually arrive at that diagnosis because I was always trying to rule out everything like, right. Oh, maybe I'm missing something. I got to make sure this isn't there. Mm. But after a while, after a few years, you do get a bit better at, um, you know, handling some of those things. They don't take quite as long. <laughs> in a lot yeah. Of 
Yeah, I'm sure that some things repeat. Is there like something that is the most common disease that you see? Well, one of the most common types of samples we get is, um, is oak wilt. Okay. And, um, you know, that's because oaks are a really important landscape shade tree in Minnesota, and especially the metro area here, the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. Um, and oak wilt is a fungal disease that's, you know, very important and can actually kill oak trees um, wow. uh, if it's a red oak in a matter of months once it's infected. Uh, whites and burrs, for example, can live many years with oak wilt, mm-hmm. but for reds, it can be a very, very serious disease. And oaks, as you might imagine, you know, very long lived, large trees, they can, you know, raise someone's property values by, you know, tens of thousands of dollars if it's wow. a charismatic tree, but it can also cost thousands of dollars to have to deal with, you know, if you have to cut it down, if it's dying and it's a, you know, a threat to your, your, your home or, um, you know, even people around. So it's a really big deal, um, to homeowners and we get probably, I think we got about 300 different Oak samples last year to, Oh my gosh. And the thing is there's, there's lookalike things. There's, there's fungi that are, um, different fungi that just infect the leaves, for example, but mm. you know, to, to somebody on the ground that could look very similar kind of symptoms. There's insects that can actually get into the branches and cause kind of wilting of the, of the leaves. And so someone might see a, you know, an oak tree with some, um, some wilting leaves and be very concerned, obviously you want to get that tested to know what they're kind of dealing with. Um, so, it, you know, there's a lot of factors that make it a very common type of sample for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, people can't diagnose it themselves. It's a very high value sample. Um, and you know, the, the fee that they have to pay to get it tested, it's about 60 to $80 is really minute compared to the costs of actually having to, you know, to deal with it. Um, right. Yeah. Okay. So to be specific with the geranium batch, um, how did you go about handling the diagnostic? Yeah. So this was an issue that wasn't, I guess, a huge surprise to us. We'd seen it before. I Mm -hmm. think the last time was, oh gosh, there was kind of an outbreak um, in Minnesota. I feel like it was um, 2014 or something like that. And um, it was, so it's something that's kind of on our radar with geraniums when they come in, especially if they have that kind of wedge shaped necrosis. Yeah. Yep. So um, immediately when you get those samples, you look for bacterial streaming. So you cut out a section of the leaf, put it on a drop of water, put a cover slip on, put it on a slide. And, you know, you look underneath the microscope and you're looking at the edges of the leaf lesion to see if you have bacteria coming out um, in mass. At that point, you know, you're suspicious of a bacterial pathogen if you see it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a matter of trying to figure out, okay, what type of bacteria is it? Okay. Is it something that's just kind of incidental, it's not going to be a big problem, or is it the, you know, the bacterial blight, the Xanthomonas um, campestris, Pathovar pelargonii. It's a very specific bacterial <laughs> screen, right? That was all just one name. It's the, yeah, it's, it's so bacterial, this is kind of a rabbit hole, but bacterial nomenclature, bacterial species, Mm -hmm. it's actually quite difficult to say what is one bacterial species and what is another. Yeah. Because they don't do sexual reproduction. Okay. So they're just cloning themselves. Right. And it's in biology, that's typically how we delineate one species from another, Mm -hmm. you know, what can you know, sort of how does sexual reproduction work within the species? But if that doesn't happen in a group of organisms, 
you essentially just have to use other features. Like, what does it look like? What does it do? You know, different sort of arbitrary things. Okay. Bacterial species, um, in this case, for example, you have Xanthomonas campestris as the species. Mm-hmm. There are dozens of different pathovars within the species, which are different groups basically within that species. And the only difference between them, or the main difference, I should say, is what they do to plants. And oh. so in this case, this pathovar of Xanthomonas campestris is especially good at infecting geraniums and causing disease. Oh, right? wow. It doesn't okay. seem to affect other types of plants, right? Unlike, you know, other groups of the Xanthomonas. Hmm. So anyway, um, long story short there, we do actually have a specific test for this pathovar, right? And the reason oh, for that wow. is because it's been an important issue for geraniums in the past. And it's actually a, a company um, made this test. It's actually a little, looks like a little dipstick. This is not oh, the- Oh, yes, you have a visual? Kind of what it looks like. It's- um, Okay. You know, it's basically a little strip of paper, essentially. Okay, yes. Yeah, reagents in the bottom. Okay. It works basically just like a pregnancy test in that it detects <laughs> the antigens of the pathogen, right? And if they're present, it causes a little line to form on the piece of paper because it wow. binds with the antibodies that are on the piece of paper. Okay. And this is enormously helpful, obviously, because yeah. it's an easy way of, of testing a pathogen. But these only exist for certain important pathogens, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but, you know, whenever they have some that are really relevant to the kinds of plants that we see in the clinic, we try to try to get some on hand. That's if really we, neat. If we didn't have this, for example, what we would probably have to do is try to isolate the bacteria, you know, grow it on like a Petri plate on some media mm-hmm. and then do like a DNA ex- sequencing of it oh, to try wow. to actually identify um, the organism. Okay. So it would have taken like a few more weeks to even get the results. Well, back, probably or... not weeks, but okay. you know, a few, a couple more days at least and a yeah. lot more bench time of, of doing all the steps of the extraction, submitting it to the sequencing center. So yeah, it would have definitely taken a, another three or four hours at least of <laughs> time. Just three or four hours. <laughs> it all adds up. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. we have 10 or different, 10 or 12 different samples and they all need different things done to them in a day. And yeah, okay. try to be as efficient as possible. And um, in dealing with them. Yeah. Is that kind of what your typical day looks like? Is it you're handling like 10 to 12 different samples that come in every day or what does it really? Yeah. I mean, it really depends on the time of year. Um, Mm -hmm. right now is when things start to get busy and it hasn't happened yet. I think it's because kind of the spring was pretty cool and things were delayed a little bit, but, um, Basically, this is when we start to anticipate being very busy and you could have, you know, 10 different, 12, 10 or 12 different samples, or maybe even more in a mm-hmm. particular day. Um, and it'll be that busy until probably about late September. Okay. So, wow. and then things start to kind of slow down a bit when you get out of the growing season, you know? Okay. All right. All right. Yeah. So I, I think we even contacted this company and let them know that, I guess we had a positive result for this um, bacteria. And they, I think, acknowledged that this came from them because other um, companies reached back out to them as well. So do you know if they get like reimbursed for those things? Like if, if you have like a positive test or outcome of something, could you give it to the company and be like, hey, we, we found results of this? I don't know. Do you know anything about 
Well, certainly I would imagine if the company wants to be, you know, um, popular with its vendors, it's, and it acknowledges that, yeah, okay, we, we brought you, sent you some bad plants. I would, (laughs) I would imagine that they would do some sort of compensation or replacement or something like that. Okay. But you know, that doesn't always happen. Sometimes things, there's disputes about Mm -hmm. what was actually the case. Um, You know, a classic sort of situation is um, herbicide damage. Mm-hmm. On, on on plants, especially things like soybeans, where they have to maybe apply like a pre-emergent herbicide mm-hmm. um, to try to manage weeds in the field. And in some cases, depending on the conditions, that might actually damage the soybean plants themselves when they start to grow. Maybe it, you know the residue lasted a bit longer. And so you could have an issue like between the chemical company and the seed company to say, well, um, you know, it's, it's, they might say, well, it's not a herbicide problem. It's a disease problem. And so they'll send us samples to try to, you know, get some evidence that I will, see. to support their argument. Okay. Um, and so you get to get those kind of issues. <laughs> You're in like some law stuff too. And, and you know, we have, we've, yeah, there, there couldn't be legal issues. We, we've been fortunate to, to avoid them, um, so far. Uh, but for one reason, especially you know, just getting to the herbicide issue, we don't have the ability to test for the residue directly mm-hmm. because we need, um, you know, some sophisticated chemical analysis equipment to do that. So mainly it's based on symptoms and not finding disease. Of course, would we say, well, suspected herbicide damage, for example, there are actually some companies, some labs that do that will actually test for the residue directly. Okay. Well, I imagine they are probably more involved in some of the legal cases that happen. That makes sense. Yeah. Hmm. So within this case of with the geraniums, do you know how that bacteria got into them or is it like just a genetic thing or how, how does that? Well, the, yeah. Um, main, you know, it's usually associated with, with production and usually moving on hands, equipment, knives, maybe if you cut into a diseased plant and you get some bacterial residue and you cut into a healthy plant and, okay. you know, it's a easy way of that getting transmitted. Okay. Um, and so that's my, um, that's how this pathogen is typically thought to be kind of, um, spread around in a production facility. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, and it's a matter of trying to reduce and get rid of all the potential inoculum once you discover you have a problem, but, you know, they do typically take pretty stringent steps to try to mm-hmm. maintain clean production when they can, because that's how these problems kind of get magnified. Mm-hmm. But obviously, you know, things happen, you know, we're dealing with a complicated biological world, right? So right. <laughs> um, in some cases, insects can spread issues too, especially some of the viral um, sort of things, you know, aphids and thrips, uh, even mm-hmm. mites, nematodes even can spread some viral diseases. Um, fungal diseases, oftentimes moving in the air, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because they're producing so many different spores that can move around. Um, but there are also fungal issues that can move on insects and move on hands and things like that. But uh, with the bacteria, oftentimes it's, especially in like a greenhouse sort of situation, it's moving on knives and hands and even on benches and things like that. So yeah, that's that why sanitation is really important. All right. Yeah. Um, and so what are some of the technology, um, equipment that you use? I know we talked about some, but like, what are like your main ones and your favorite ones, least favorite? I don't know. <laughs> um, well, the microscopes are, are what we use the most. Okay. 
Um, and that's because most of the issues we deal with are fungal and mm-hmm. you can, and it's the fastest way of, of, of identifying a disease. Um, you know, then we have what's called serological, um, types of tests. And that basically refers to antigens and antibodies. Okay. Um, and you know, everybody I'm probably in the last couple of years is sort of familiar with those tests you know, <laughs> yeah. the ones you get from the, the, um, you know, the pharmacy, if you're wanting to get your sort of quick, um, COVID tests, that's basically mm-hmm. how they work. Okay. Um, or there's also DNA tests, which is, um, where we're actually extracting DNA and using what you call primers to try to amplify a specific DNA sequence to see okay. if that's there. Um, so you have, uh, you know, microscopes, serological tests, uh, DNA also just kind of referred to as molecular mm-hmm. okay. um, tests. There are other things um, like um, bioassays, for example, that we don't really do too much in the clinic because they typically take a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but what that would be involved uh, would be actually having healthy plants that you inoculate. Uh, maybe with a potential pathogen and you're trying to see, okay, this thing that I've isolated, is it actually the path of our, of bacteria that I'm concerned about? You might actually inoculate at what's called an indicator plant in the greenhouse and see if it develops those symptoms. Hmm. So that was certainly a type of test that was important, especially before we had some of these newer kind of DNA technologies that people would have to do a lot more of, um, And, but you still see that with, um, you know, race detection of different, um, pathogens, uh, to see like what cultivar of plant is actually affected, which cultivars are resistant. Mm -hmm. You know, you you do see some labs that have, um, maybe, um, I don't know, more specialty in some of those areas getting into some of that. Hmm. Interesting. Um, and is there something that you want to like learn more about in your department, like something that you haven't really looked into, but you're interested in? Oh gosh. Um, yeah, I mean, we have a lot of different, uh, ranges of expertise in the department, uh, which makes it really kind of a fun place to be. Um, and it's neat because you are, you know, you're talking to, to people who are specializing different things at coffee and people are giving different seminars. And so I do get to hear about a lot of um, different types of expertise. So um, one thing, I've, one area I've really been interested in that, um, just as an example, uh, is uh, this idea of suppressive soils, which is basically this, um, this concept where uh, certain types of soils have a natural ability to inhibit diseases. And essentially what happens is there's some organism, oftentimes a bacterial organism that is antagonistic to other bacteria. And so it inhibits it, you know, they're producing antibiotics and things like that to inhibit them. And um, it helps farmers because then they can, they can grow plants and have less disease in these areas. So trying to figure out um, what causes a suppressive soil, what leads to that kind mm-hmm. of condition, like, can we simulate it? Can we replicate it? Can we do things that, you know, cause the, what's called the microbiome of the, the soil or the plant to be suppressive to disease, I mm-hmm. think is a really exciting area. And that's something that Dr. Linda Kinkle is involved with. Um, I was able to collaborate with her a bit as a postdoc, but it's always been something I've been really fascinated by, you know, and, you know, now in the last 10, 20 years, actually 10 years, especially 
we do have some tools where we can actually analyze some of these communities in ways that we couldn't before, mm-hmm. you know, with some of the, the new sequencing technologies um, that helps us kind of better understand them. But, you know, they're just so many, so complicated, these systems, so many different, you know, moving parts, different species that are involved with, um, they can be, you know, pretty daunting sort of research challenges. Hmm. Hmm. That's awesome that you have like a thing you want to move forward with. So I like that. Um, And how do you recommend people get rid of these like infected disease plants um, in the best way, like without spreading, contaminating? Yeah, um, that's a good question. You know, um, burying them, burning them, um, things like that is is typically recommended. I I don't typically tell people to put things in the compost that they know are diseased. You know, it's true that composting, if done correctly, can, you know, generate a lot of heat, it can kill a lot of pathogens. And so in general, it's a very good process to do to provide, mm-hmm. you know, to produce sort of um, good organic material to use in planting. But if you, you know, it, sometimes it doesn't always work quite right. You don't quite get to the heat to kill the pathogen or something mm-hmm. like that. Or maybe the pathogen produces a structure that helps it, you know, survive the composting process. So um, generally you don't want to use known disease material in composting. Uh, you want to get it rid of it in a way where it's not going to be in contact with, with other plants. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. I got you. <laughs> Burying typically is pretty safe. If you can burn it in some way, that's, that's um, can be effective as well. You know, sometimes with some of these uh, things like oak wilt, mm-hmm. um, that can be a problem because people use firewood, which, uh-huh. That's not a problem by itself. It's that people move the firewood <laughs> you know, <laughs> after their cabin in northern Minnesota. Or right. Okay. And oak well isn't present in some of those areas. And so if the pathogen is still on that log, gets moved up to the cabin and you get some beetles that are hatching out of it, they can actually move the pathogen to nearby trees. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's a kind of a worst case scenario. So, you know, there are some suggestions we have for people like certainly not moving firewood um, that either I'm suspicious about or no, has it have a disease? Sometimes you can burn it on site and that's not a big problem, but um, mm-hmm. you always yeah. want to make sure you're doing the right thing. Yeah. If you can burn it uh, somewhere, I guess, if you have the space to burn it too. Yeah. Debarking can be really helpful too. Oh. To, um, you know, just peeling the bark off can prevent a lot of these, some of these things like oak wilt from, from sporulating okay. effectively and can prevent some of the, some of the beetles from getting a home in there, you know? Hmm. Oh, I had no idea. That's cool. Um, and so how do you think flora and fungi as a whole could influence the future? Um, well, I mean, it, in a lot of ways, it sort of is the future, you know, and um, I, it's, it's exciting because they could, inf- it could influence the future in ways that we really can't even predict. You know, if you think of what makes earth special, you know, compared to everything else in the universe that we at least know of so far mm-hmm. is we do have a history of life and, you know, how evolution has sort of shaped some of these organisms and really result in some really outstanding and incredible, you know, sort of features. And you could look at the, say it's the genotype, you know, all the genes in general or the genes individually, mm-hmm. uh, that really is the sort of you know, treasure of the planet, obviously, um, you know, compared to any sort of inorganic material that's 
you yeah. know, sort of transient and not really that special in the universe compared to <laughs> other places you can go. So, I mean, you know, who knows what, how, what some of these organisms have in them, in their genes, in their, you know, in their genomes yeah. or um, can do sort of physiologically that, um, you know, think of all the medicines we've gotten, all the antibiotics, all mm-hmm. the sort of really interesting immunosuppressives that we've gotten from, from fungal organisms, you know, um, that we, you know, the whole reason you can do organ transplants and things like that is from, you know, molecules we've gotten from fungi that suppress wow. immune systems. So you don't get organ rejection and wow, brilliant. Um, different surgeries in general that you can do because you can do and use antibiotics to, you know, heal infections and things like that. So really it's been, you know, we've already seen some, you know, tremendous sort of, uh, benefits from some of these organisms that probably people would never have predicted two or 300 years ago. Mm-hmm. So as far as what we'll be able to do with them in the future, I think it's almost unlimited potential in some I ways. I love that. I love that. And how do you think people can get more involved with flora and fungi? Um, you know, there's a lot of different ways you could go about that, depending on what you're specifically interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously with flora, you know, there's a lot of gardening groups and master gardeners and different types of things like that, um, that I would encourage people to get involved with. There's so much expertise that's out there and, you know, communities that are very supportive and just want people to, you know, um, be able to grow plants in a, in a better way and, you know, enjoy that. Mm-hmm. With fungi, there's the Minnesota uh, Mycological Society. Yes, there is. I would definitely recommend people get into. It's a really fun group. I've, I've talked to that, given some presentation to that group before, and That's they awesome. have different forays that they'll, that they'll go on different times of year. They'll have um, sort of monthly meetings where they have different presenters and things like that. And mm-hmm. That's a really great way of getting, you know, getting started and just finding the people who are, you know, good, um, supportive sort of helpers in in the process. I agree. That is why I started this podcast to kind of get some networking and education is my thing. So thank you, Brett, for uh, coming on Flora Funga podcast. This is really interesting and I would love to follow up in the future. I definitely want to do that tour of some sort um, soon and then. If you have any pictures, I would like some pictures for uh, the website when I post this episode of like a microscope or anything type of things. Oh, sure. Yeah. I'll pull some things together. All right. Awesome. Um, Well, anything else you'd like to say? Um, No, I just, you know, it's been a lot of fun and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about um, some of these things. So yeah, just let me know if you have any questions. We do have a website, um, people are interested, pdc.umn.edu. Find instructions for submitting a sample. Um, You can see what our fees are, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. If you're in Minnesota, um, we, you know, definitely recommend you looking us up. If you're in a different state, Mm -hmm. um, there is, I can assure you a a diagnostic lab in your state that you can, you can also look into. Uh, I would Google um, plant disease clinic and then put your state name in that search as well. And that's a pretty good way of starting that. So um, we always recommend people use clinics that are relatively local to them because they are, of course, have the best handle on, you know, what types Mm. of diseases and hosts are the most relevant, but um, yeah. That would make, that would make total sense. So you don't want to kind of uh, bring samples across borders (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we do have a permit that allows us to accept samples from at least the continental U.S., you know, okay. but you're right that there's a lot of restrictions for good reason on the movement of, of plant disease. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in, in general, it's a good idea to, to use your local clinic um, right. for a lot of different reasons. Okay. Well, I love that. And yeah, thank you again, Brett, for being on for a Funga podcast. I I was so nerdy and I I told my supervisor that I was having you on and um, I had to know more about this. So thank you again for taking the time. And um, yeah, I hope you have a great day. All right. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks. Bye. Well, thank you for listening to this week's episode on 39 Plant Disease Clinic with Brett Ahrens. And also check out that website if you want to help diagnose something, which was pdc.umn.edu. And again, that link will be posted below. And I just want to give a shout out to the people that I will be interviewing in Germany coming up. So... Thank you to Dirty Roots. Thank you to Hani in Berlin, which I will actually be doing a forest walk with them, which is super exciting. And then also I will be interviewing De Econer, which I think is translated to ecological gardener. So I'm super excited to interview him. And that will be in Belgium, actually. So I'm actually doing some traveling from Berlin, Germany to visit him in Belgium and then kind of landing in London. Um, but yeah, I am very willing to do in-person interviews, as you can see, and hopefully here soon. So I'm super excited for that in the future. And also, just like, please support the show. I don't really like asking for help or money, but Zoom actually just updated their basic program. So now it costs money to do something more than 40 minutes. And I would love to have interviews that are longer than 40 minutes. So if anybody wants to donate um, some money per month or I don't know, just help out the show so I can keep that going just because it's really hard to pay for all of these things. Um, it does add up in the end, the website, you know, annual monthly fees. So if you like the show, please uh, support it. And that will be a link below on my Patreon. I have been updating videos and soon I will be having a fun experiment with me and my friend where we go through a contaminated ginger beer. So that should be fun as an in-person I guess, experiment. So um, if anything else, please leave a review or a comment. I love getting emails about people. Reach out if you want me to interview you or just visit you. Do a tour of your fun plant or fungi uh, hobby. And all right, have a good week, my scientists, and go learn something new today. Peaches! Tired of feeling drained and lethargic? Wish you could boost your energy levels naturally and stay focused throughout the day with no crash? I've been struggling with this problem too. Thank you to Sovereignty's purpose for the ultimate energy of the day. Imagine a world where you wake up feeling refreshed, alert, and ready to conquer any challenge that comes your way. With Sovereignty, you live your life with purpose.
Whether you're tackling a project, powering through a workout, or simply need a pick-me-up during the day, Purpose is carefully crafted with a powerful combination of amazing ingredients like green coffee bean extract, cordyceps, ashwagandha, bacopa, beet juice, hemp blend, green tea extract, cherry, blueberry, broccoli, kale, and turmeric extract. All of this is only 25 calories and 115 milligrams of caffeine with no jitters and no crashes. Harness this aptogenic blend of benefits in your next smoothie, drink, cocktail, or dessert. Whether you're an entrepreneur, farmer, business professional, or student, Purpose has got your back. No more sluggish afternoons and hello productivity that lasts. Grab your blend with 10% off using the code KK10 on Sovereignty.co. That's S-O-V-E-R-E-I-G-N-T-Y dot C-O and use KK20 for 20% off at checkout.